you can turn in your copy of the scriptures to Galatians chapter 1. On December 26th, 1960, the Green Bay Packers blew a fourth quarter lead against the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFL championship. And the result was a devastating loss. The following summer, July of 1961, when some of those same Packer football players uh, returned for training camp, they were expecting their coach to immediately uh, clue them into some new techniques, some fancy plays that would give them a competitive edge in the upcoming season. But instead, their coach, Vince Lombardi, stood before 38 professional football players who had been playing football their entire lives, and he said to them, gentlemen, this is a football. And the message was clear. They're going back to basics. Wouldn't be fancy plays. It would be fundamentals. And if you know the history, you know the Packers went on to win five of the next seven uh, championship games. Now, if, if you're newer to JCF Williamstown, at the beginning of each year, we like to do a short sermon series where we go back to the basics and remind ourselves who we are and why we're here and what we're doing. And in truth, you know, the, the church really should never go back to the basics. We really should never move on from them. However, it's, it's good for us to remember these fundamental things and commit again to building our lives on them. Now, this year, we're taking just two weeks to do this because really the basics of who we are and why we're here and what we're doing can be boiled down to two things, gospel doctrine and gospel culture. You can boil everything we are doing and everything we are into these two things, gospel doctrine and gospel culture. In other words, the most important things about this church can fit under these headings. What we believe and how we want to live out those beliefs. Yesterday, I had the, the joy of walking uh, uh, about a dozen folks through our Discovering Joy class. And, and in that class, we walked through our two most important founding documents. Our statement of faith and our members' covenant. And do you know what those two documents, documents represent? They represent gospel doctrine and gospel culture. What we believe, the things that we are confessing together, and how we want to see those beliefs worked out in the way that we live our lives together. And that really is the whole of the Christian life, isn't it? It's, it's the marriage between our confession and our conduct, our principle and our practice, our profession and our expression, our belief and our behavior, our faith and our life, our word and our deed. In fact, this gospel doctrine and gospel culture dynamic is actually baked into the very logic of Scripture. When you read the epistles, what you'll find is gospel indicatives and gospel imperatives. Gospel indicatives are those promises, statements, things that communicate what God has done 
for his people, what God has done for sinners. And gospel imperatives are those commands and instructions that tell us how to live in response to what he has done. And so we find this baked into the very logic of Scripture, gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And so we want to be a church that is standing firm in the truth of the gospel and living faithful lives in response to that gospel. We want our whole lives together as a church to be built on the confession of a true biblical gospel and a life that adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. One pastor writing on the subject put it this way. He said, the test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. And to veer away from either one of these will prove catastrophic. So to put it in mathematical terms, if you're someone that likes a simple equation, gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. Some of you have been a part of churches where on paper everything looks good. You read the gospel doctrine and everything looks good, but the gospel has not actually penetrated and begun to shape the way people actually live their lives together. So there's greed and, and pride and jealousy, and, 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 and you just get the sense something's off here. Well, it could be that there might be good gospel doctrine, but no gospel culture. But the flip side is just as dangerous. What happens when you have gospel culture, but no gospel doctrine? You get heresy. You may be in a, a church with very nice, well-meaning people, but there in that church, there's, a there's no gospel. There, there, there isn't a message that can save people from their sins. And where there's no gospel, there's no church at all. But to be a church with both faithful gospel doctrine and real gospel culture is to possess a life together that swirls around and pulsates with spiritual vitality and stability and durability and intensity and authenticity and integrity and felicity. I just mean joy, but I needed another word that ended in I-T-Y. Felicity and joy, that's what you get when you have gospel doctrine and gospel culture. You have firmly rooted, durable, stable, intense lives together filled with joy. And so this week, we want to look at these two, uh, over these next two weeks, we look at these two headings, gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And we're going to look at them through the lens of Paul's letter to the Galatians, where these two realities take center stage. So this morning, we'll focus on gospel doctrine. So if you have your copy of the scriptures open, Galatians, I'm going to start in verse 1. Galatians 1.1. Listen as I read God's word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, 
But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's word. Would you pray with me again one more time? Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for um, the reality that you have spoken to us, that you have not left us groping in the dark, but you have made yourself known to us. And so we pray now by your word that what we do not know you would teach us, what we do not have please give us, and what we are not, would you please make us in your son, Jesus Christ, for the glory of your name. Lord, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Feed us now according to your marvelous riches, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've read the book of Galatians before, you know that Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right down to it, so that's what I'm gonna do. Uh, he is emphasizing in the strongest terms possible that the churches of Galatia and all churches need to stand firmly on faithful gospel doctrine. And we see that faithful gospel-centered churches are characterized, uh, at least in this passage, by three things. First, they're clear on the gospel. They're clear on the gospel. Second, they cling to the gospel And third, they contend for the gospel. They're clear on it, they cling to it, they contend for it. So first, gospel-centered churches are clear on the gospel. One of the first things that jumps out at us in this passage is Paul's dire concern that the churches in Galatia are turning away from the true gospel to a false gospel that's been introduced by false teachers. In verse 7 he writes, There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the brothers and sisters in Galatia have become troubled. They are uh, distressed or disturbed. And the sense here isn't that they're irritated with the false teachers. Like we could understand that. They were just irritated with the false teachers. That's not the sense. Rather, they are unsettled by their teaching and are flirting with the notion that what Paul preached to them was an incomplete false gospel. But in reality, it was the false teachers who were distorting the gospel. That is, they were fundamentally changing it and altering it so that it wasn't the gospel at all anymore. Well, how were they doing? What, how were they doing this? What, what is the distortion? Uh, we know these false teachers in scripture as the Judaizers. Have you heard of the Judaizers? They taught that Jesus was necessary, but not sufficient for salvation. In order to be really right with God, you of course had to trust in Christ, but you also had to devote yourself to faithful obedience to the law of Moses, specifically to the practice of circumcision. In in, uh, uh, Acts 15, they're called the circumcision party. And what was so heinous about this false gospel is that it sought to add the law to grace. Rather than salvation 
coming by God's grace alone, these men taught that in addition to God's grace, true righteousness required faithful obedience to the law. Now this is why Paul begins his rebuke by saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Theirs was a Jesus plus gospel, not a Jesus alone gospel. But Jesus was not enough. You need Jesus plus works of the law. But Paul is saying, no, no, no. Christ and Christ alone, faith in Christ alone is sufficient. And as soon as you try to add the law into the gospel, you've ruined it. It reminds me of a story of a Christian man uh, and his neighbor. And he had been uh, trying to evangelize this neighbor for some time. Uh, but every time they came, they came to this issue of grace, that it's by grace alone, this neighbor would just scoff and balk at it. Surely, uh, in order to be right with God, we, had to, we have to do something. There has to be some you know, path or some system that you have to follow. And every time he would drill down on grace, and this guy would just dismiss it. This, that's silly. And so this neighbor, or this uh, Christian man, knowing that this neighbor was a craftsman, said, uh, can, can you please build me? A, a, a chair, a reading chair that I can sit in. And uh, the, the neighbor, you know, excited to put his skills to work, goes into his workshop and he builds the perfect chair. It's, it's, it's absolutely perfect craftsmanship. There, there, there's no hardware visible. All the joints fit together perfectly. It's stable. It's sturdy. It's beautiful. And when he finally has this completed chair ready to bring back to this Christian man, he comes to the man's house and he gives him the chair. And the Christian man says, oh, thank you very much. And he goes, disappears into a closet and he brings back a drill and some screws and some ratty two by fours. And the guy says, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And he says, well, I just thought I'd sturdy it up for you and, and, and drill some extra supports into the chair to make sure it's sturdy. And he says, if you add anything to this chair, this perfect chair, you're going to absolutely spoil it and ruin it. And the man says, so it is with the grace of Jesus Christ. You add anything to this salvation and you utterly ruin it. That's what Paul's trying to communicate to these Galatians. Now, brothers and sisters, this is, this is one distortion of the gospel among many. You know, there are many ways that the gospel has been twisted in in the West in particular, in the 21st century. And and listen, the enemy would love nothing more than to sow trouble and distress in your hearts through these false gospels. And so elders, and as a church, we always want to be crystal clear on what the gospel is. We want to be absolutely, explicitly clear clear on what the gospel is because that's the thing is that the enemy's tactics isn't to come in and say hey I've got a big giant deception here for you no what the enemy does is he moves takes a little bit of lie and mixes it in with the truth a a little twist here a little tweak there but remember Paul said you, you tweak it you twist it you add to it you take away from it you've ruined it you've spoiled it it's a gospel that can't save and there's so many ways, sadly, that the enemy has been successful in doing this in our culture. Of course, we have our own iterations of the Jesus plus gospel. You know, in certain contexts, you know, you know you're really a Christian 
The way you know you're really a Christian is if you read a certain translation of the Bible, or if you homeschool your kids, or if you only listen, if you only listen to certain kinds of music, or if uh, you only wear certain clothes, or if you practice certain spiritual disciplines, then you, then you can really know you're a Christian. But then you have the opposite error, an antinomian gospel. That word antinomian is a big fancy word. It just means anti-law. Namas is Greek for law. Antinomian, anti-law. This means, uh, th- this is a gospel that presumes on God's grace and distorts the, transpa- the transformative power of the gospel by encouraging Christians to use their freedom in Jesus as license to sin and to live just like the world. Then that you have the social gospel, which at best de-emphasizes and at worst completely ignores the central beliefs and doctrines and tenets of Christianity and argues that what the gospel is really about is helping homeless people and feeding the poor and solving the social problems of society. And then there is the full gospel. You've heard of that? The full gospel or the health and wealth gospel. And you, and you can even hear it there, right? Like calling it the full gospel. It insinuates that, no, 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 there's actually something else beyond. There, there's a full, fuller gospel that's being missed, right? And this gospel would say that Jesus died to purchase your physical health and your prosperity right now. Right now, this life right now, Jesus died so that you could be healthy and wealthy and rich and prosperous right now. Has Jesus died to purchase your ultimate health and prosperity in him? You better believe it and you'll know all of it in the resurrection. But he hasn't purchased it right now. And then there is what has popularly popularly become known as moral therapeutic deism. Have you heard that phrase? Moral therapeutic deism. This says that there is a God who made you, and generally he wants you to be nice to other people and fair to other people. And the goal of your life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And, and, and really, God is there when you need help from him. If, if, if you have a problem, you can go to God and ask him for, pro, for, for help. But in the end, it's, it's really good people. It's the good people who are, who are kind to each other. They're the ones, in the end, that get to go to heaven. Now, there are many more. But the point is, I want you to see these are all counterfeits. And do you notice how all of them have flecks of truth in them? Right? Like, should we care for poor people? Should we care? We're going to talk about this next week. Part of gospel culture is the way in which the gospel moves us out to treat others the way we have been treated by God in Christ. To show mercy, to show compassion, to show kindness. Is that the central tenet of the gospel, though? Is the gospel about fixing social problems? Now, how do we defend ourselves against these distorted gospels? We need to be clear on what the gospel is. We need to be clear. Do we need to relentlessly study all of the false gospels that there are out there? Could you even do that? You know, like if you just scour like social media, you could just keep listing them and listening. There's false, false gospels all over the place. But what we need to do is drive ourselves over and over and over again, deeply and more deeply into the true gospel that is here in the scriptures, handed by Jesus to the apostles and handed down to us, so that whenever we come to a false gospel, it sticks out like a sore thumb. You you know, if if you were to play for me a hundred voices, 
of other women, like a recording, I would be able to pick out for you which of those voices is my wife's voice. Why is that? Is it because I have studied the way in which all those other voices are, are different and, and, and don't match my wife's voice? Is that how I study all the, the counterfeits? No. It's because every single day I hear my wife's voice. And I know her voice better than I know anyone else's voice. The tone, the pitch, the inflection. And because I know it, when I hear someone's voice that's not hers, I know that, no, that's not her voice. And so that's how we're supposed to relate to the gospel. We drive down into the, to the truth of the gospel. We drill it down into our hearts so that whenever a false gospel arrives, we can identify it and dismiss it, expel it. And so the best defense against false counterfeit gospels is to soundly and fir- firmly root ourselves in a true gospel. And look, Paul gives it to us in verses 3 to 5. Look in your, look in your, look in your uh, Bibles. Verses 3 to 5, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of, God, of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the good news. This is the gospel that according to the will of God from all eternity past, he determined to send his son into the world and his son Jesus Christ voluntarily gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. This age that is characterized by rebellion against God and to deliver us into his kingdom, which is characterized by right relationship with God, transformed hearts that love him and joy in his presence forever to the glory of his name. It is the good news that God has done everything in Christ. He's done everything in Christ to rescue ruined sinners. Sinners ruined by the fall. In Christ, through his life, his perfect life of obedience, his sacrificial death upon the cross, and his victorious resurrection, he has done everything to accomplish your salvation so that now there is nothing left for you to do. On the cross, he bore all of your judgment, all of the punishment for your sin, every single ounce of righteous wrath that belonged to you was poured out upon Christ so that if you have united to him by faith not through works not through good deeds not through some system or plan or 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 program but if you have united to Christ simply by trusting in God's mercy to you through his son all of your sins have been wiped away forever you have been unalterably adopted into the family of God. You have been clothed in the very righteousness of Christ so that when God looks upon you, what he sees is the perfect life of his son. And now Jesus ever lives and ever reigns as your advocate, as your intercessor, your high priest, interceding for you before the throne of God. 
preserving, keeping, sustaining you until that day when he finally delivers you into the very presence of God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel, and we must be explicit and clear about what the good news is and what it is not. But we don't just need right understanding, right? We don't just need to know what it is informationally. We don't just need to be clear on the gospel. We need to cling to it. Gospel-centered churches are clear on the gospel, but they cling to the gospel as well. Again, look at Paul's rebuke. He says in verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Their embrace of this false gospel was to renounce the gospel Paul had preached. It was to embrace a gospel that had no power to save at all. And sometimes negative examples are what we need. Like I know some of you are, are, you know, the way that you parent is like primarily informed by knowing I do not want to parent the way I was parented. Sometimes we just need negative examples. And the call here is don't be like the Galatians who began to desert and to turn away to a different gospel. Don't do that. Cling to this gospel. Hold fast to it. Hang on to it. And, and, and listen, can, what is this command? What is this instruction to cling to the gospel? Like, am I giving you now a law or a work? Am I giving you, is this the thing that you will finally be measured by in the courts of heaven? How, how strongly and how firmly you clung to the gospel? Is this the thing that will be the thing that, that measures whether or not you are, uh, whether you are approved of by God? Is it your strength, your ability to cling? No. The call to cling to the gospel is a call to starving people to eat. Do you hear what I'm saying? The call to cling to the gospel is a call to starving people to eat. It's a call to people dying of thirst to drink. It's a summons to those who are suffocating to breathe. The call to cling to the gospel is a call to those who are freezing to find warmth. A call to those who are dying to live. It's not a law. It's in clinging to the gospel that we have life. We cling to the gospel because church history shows that God's people are always in danger of moving on or adding to or slipping from the gospel. They are always just one step away from embracing a false gospel that cannot save. And so Paul writes with the strongest language and the utmost urgency. He says, uh, we're going to talk about this in verses 8 and 9 in a moment, but when Paul returns to the same theme at the end of his book, at the end of the epistle, he says this in chapter 5. And listen to how strong this language is. He says, Verse 7, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view 
and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish, listen to this, I wish those who unsettle you or those who trouble you or those who cause you distress by teaching these false gospels, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. A strong language coming from Paul, right? The Bible is not for the faint of heart. That word emasculate is literally the term for physical castration. And Paul is raising the stakes, as it were, and he's saying to those who would advocate for circumcision, he's saying, well, if you're going to advocate for circumcision, why don't you just go the whole way and emasculate and castrate yourselves and so demonstrate and so symbolize that you ought to just be cut off from God's people. That's what circumcision uh, signified, or at least part of what it signified. For Paul, this is of the highest eternal significance. It is paramount. What's at stake here is eternal life and eternal death, heaven and hell. And, and you, you know, you don't find uh, Paul, I, I don't think, if, if there are any places, you can let me know. I'm pretty sure there are no places where you find Paul calling people to castrate themselves over, like, eschatology or, like, worship style or, uh, you know, your, even your view on baptism. Like Paul's got a category for primary matters and secondary matters. And this, 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 cat, this gospel is, is a primary concern. The, 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 over the gospel is the only thing where he's like, hey, if, if, if there are people that are preaching false gospels, they ought to just castrate themselves. They ought to just cut themselves off from God's people altogether. The gospel is central to everything. It's the foundation of everything. And so listen, when Paul, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, when he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says, I deliver to you that which is of pseudo, secondary, tertiary importance. No, I deliver to you that which is of first importance, central, paramount. This is the highest, most important thing. Do we have a biblical, true gospel? Paul knows that, the, that this gospel is the gospel which we, have which we have received, in which we stand, and by which we are being saved. J.I. Packer put it this way. He says, the gospel, I wonder, I wonder if you have encountered teaching like this where the gospel is sort of like the ABCs of things. It's like step one. It's the stepping stone. But then you've got to move on to the, to the more advanced stuff, the more advanced Christian stuff. You know, J.I. Packer says, the gospel is not the ABCs, of Christianity, it's the A through Z. From start to finish, the gospel is the most important central thing from start to finish because it's the gospel by which we are saved, the gospel by which we are being saved, and the gospel by which we will finally be saved. And so we must cling to it. We have to cling to it. And how, how do we cling to it? That by centering our lives on it together, by refusing to move on from it, by consistently and faithfully holding it up and calling one another to reliance upon 
God's grace in Christ. So just a couple headings. Again, this is a series about who are we and why are we doing what we're doing, okay? We're cl- what I'm telling you is that we want to be a church now and, and always, as long as this church would be a church, that it would be a church that clings to the gospel. So a couple headings, that in our preaching and teaching, we would preach faithfully and teach faithfully the gospel. That in all of our teaching, it would center and serve to lift up the glory of Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Savior who saves sinners. And what does that mean? You know this. It means if you're here in this church, you're going to hear us talk about Jesus a lot. And that's good. Because we need to remember. We need to be reminded. And listen, I think you've heard that a lot throughout the service this morning. Like, we need to be reminded. We forget. And understand what's being said. Are are we saying that, like, you know, when you leave this building and when you go to sleep tonight, like, your mind just going to be wiped clean and you're going to come here next week and be like, what? I've never heard this information before. I totally forgot. I've forgotten all the information you know, who is Jesus? Is, is our forgetting the gospel that we forget the information? Maybe for some of you it is. Like maybe at times we do, we do forget we need to be reminded of certain propositional truths. But that's not really what we're saying. We're saying that week by week, day by day, we need those same truths that we know in our minds to wash over us again. We need the truth of the gospel to, to come down and bear upon our hearts again. Like every week, you need to come in here and you need to hear again, brothers and sisters, he loves you in Jesus Christ. He has poured out his love to you so that you are his children, his beloved children whom he delights in. Every week and every day by day, we need, to, we need to bathe again in the goodness of knowing your sins are completely forgiven. There is no condemnation for you. God is not in heaven scowling, disappointed, wanting to just drop the hammer on you. No, God rejoices and delights in you. It, it, you need to be reminded again that, that day by day when God looks upon you, what he sees is Christ's perfect life of obedience. We, we need these truths to wash over us again. We need to, to stand in the warm sunlight of that truth over and over and over again. Not because we forget the information, but because again and again we need to experience, we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. In our preaching, in our worship, so I'm giving you some headings. In our preaching, we need to be faithful to cling to the gospel. In our worship, now preaching is worship. Right? This is a time of worship. But in our whole time of worship together, as we gather on Sunday mornings, um, I always do this. I want to say something from the bulletin, and then I don't have it. Uh, at the beginning, is your bulletin up here, Steve? Here it is. I'm stealing your bulletin, Steve. I'll put it back. Uh, <clears throat> do you notice at, at the very top of our bulletin, on the page where the order of worship is, do you, I'm going to read this to you. It says, in obedience to Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, we gather on the first day of the week to worship God and to encourage each other. Our service is designed to introduce you or to renew you in the gospel, which is the good news of salvation in Jesus. That's what this whole thing is about. Every component piece of this service is designed to either introduce or renew and refresh you in the gospel. 
That's what our worship is, a call to worship. To be reminded again that because of God's grace to us in Christ, we have been called in to the very inner places where we can worship God, where we can see him and know him. In in, in a prayer of confession, where we can go before him and know that he hears and confess our sin to him and then hear a word and assurance of pardon to hear his word preached, the gospel preached again, to come to the table and see the gospel made visible. See, all of our worship is designed to help us cling to the gospel. We need to cling to the gospel in our fellowship. What is it that binds us together? What is the thing that binds us together as as members of this church? It's not history. It's not past experience. It's not hobbies. It's not, you know, shared uh, favorite sports teams. It is this fact that if you are here trusting in Jesus, that what binds you together with all your brothers and sisters is that you have been forgiven all your sins because of Christ's finished work. You are bound up together by the very blood of Christ. That's what makes us one. And it's not only what makes us one, it's the thing that should, encur- that, that should move us to uh, commit to encourage one another in the gospel. But what do we need to give to one another over and over and over again? Do we need to give one another like worldly pep talks and, 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 and you know, good self-help advice? No. We know that what we need to give one another over and over again as brothers and sisters who love each other is the gospel. We need to minister the gospel to one another. So we want to cling to the gospel in our preaching and our worship and our fellowship and then cling to it in our homes, in our private lives as we raise our children, that we would be regularly calling them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that in our own private times of communion with the Lord in the word and in prayer, that we would be clinging to the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel-centered churches, they, they are clear on the gospel, they cling to it. It's their, it's their life. It's their life source, the life blood. Without the gospel, there is no church. You know what, in the the book of Revelation, you know what Jesus calls churches without the gospel? It's a more strong language. He calls them synagogues of Satan. Churches where there is no gospel, they aren't churches. Listen, you know this. There are lots of buildings in this town that have the name church at the top where the gospel is not preached. The building might say church. It's not a church. It's not a church. There is only a church where the gospel, the biblical gospel, is preached. So we must be clear on the gospel. We must cling to it. And lastly, truly gospel-centered churches, they contend for the gospel. They're clear on the gospel. They cling to the gospel. They contend for the gospel. Now, I'm borrowing this language of contending from our scripture reading found in Jude's epistle where he writes, I found it necessary, we read this just a little bit, little bit ago, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What Jude says explicitly that we have to contend for the faith, Paul expresses here very forcefully, doesn't he? In verses eight and nine, look at there, chapter one, verses eight, look what he says. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
See, again, we find Paul speaking in the strongest terms possible. He says, let anyone who comes preaching a false gospel, let them be damned. Let them be accursed. Let them be condemned forever. And you, you need to recognize and understand that this is not Paul using hyperbole. This is not hyperbolic. Or as one commentator put it, this is not a careless utterance expressing more accurately his immediate feelings than his general theory. In other words, Paul is not spouting off his mouth in the heat of the moment. It's not what's happening here. We do that, right? Sometimes we like just, get, the moment gets heated and we say things that we don't mean and then we have to go back and say, hey, I'm really sorry. I was riled up. I said some things. They were too harsh. Please forgive me. Paul is never going to come back to the Galatians and say, hey, you know, I got a little heated and I said some harsh things. And I, I'm really sorry. That's not, that's not what's happening here. And the way you know that is that he repeats it, right? Paul, Paul's like, if anyone comes to you, a, a man or even an angel, if they come to you preaching a false gospel, let them be accursed. Now, let me repeat myself. If anyone comes, a man, an angel, preaching to you a false gospel, let them be accursed. Paul knows what he's saying, and he means what he's saying. Now, that word accursed there, some have argued that this is, is just like church discipline, and it's certainly not less than that. But what Paul is saying is, let them be delivered up to the righteous wrath of God. Listen, Paul envisions such a commitment and an allegiance to the true gospel that anyone who would come in and presume to teach with authority a gospel other than the biblical gospel should be regarded as an enemy of the cross fit only for condemnation and destruction. That's what Paul's saying. He envisions churches that are committed to contending for the gospel. They have at their very center this message of good news and they hold on to it with a closed fist. At our, in the Discovering Joy class yesterday, we talked about some of, the, some of the things that are like, these are things that we hold with a closed hand and these are things we hold with an open hand. The things we hold with a closed hand, we, these are things that we will never ever let go of. These are things that we will go to the mat for. These are things that we will die for. These are the things that without them, there is no salvation. Okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm not gonna die, right? We're not gonna have people die uh, or, or, or hold on to these things with a closed hand over things like worship style and your particular view on spiritual gifts or your particular eschatology. But this gospel, this gospel, we hold on to it with a closed hand. This is where we plant our flag Now, lots of things that we hold with an open hand, but the gospel is not one of those things. And so we must contend for the gospel. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, as, as I finish up here, let me give you three E's to help you think about what it means to contend for the gospel. First, to contend, to contend for the gospel, it literally means to exert intense effort on behalf of something. And so we must be devoted to the gospel in word and deed. Like this is that gospel doctrine and gospel culture uh, dynamic again. Here, the, the, uh, the, in Jude, that word for contend means both a devotion to the gospel in what it teaches 
and a devotion to the implications of that gospel, the application of it, how it calls us to live our lives as a, in response. And so we must strive in the grace that God supplies not only to commit ourselves to the faithful preaching and teaching of the gospel, but to faithful living in response to the gospel. So we exert ourselves, intense effort in devotion to the gospel. That's the first thing. The second is it means to expel anything that is not consistent with a true gospel. You know, one of the most striking things about this passage is who it's addressed to. It, it, I, we start in the beginning, and do you see there in verse 2? It says, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, he's going he's gonna to double down. He's going to drive right out this issue of false doctrine and false teaching and false gospels. And you, you would think that when Paul comes to address this issue of false teaching and false gospels, that he would take aim at who? Who do you think? It's not rhetorical. Who do you think? Who do you think... Who do you think he would aim his rebuke at in a church where there's false teaching? Yeah, the elders, the pastors. And listen, let, let, me, let, let me qualify. The elders do have a leading role in shepherding and guarding and promoting right teaching. But notice here that Paul addresses this rebuke to the church to the churches in Galatia. He addresses this rebuke to the church. He says effectively to the Galatian brothers and sisters, why did you let these charlatans in the door? Why did you let these false teachers in the door? And you need to understand that part of what you covenant to do as a member of this church is to contend for the gospel. In our members' covenant, we commit together to defend and maintain an evangelical ministry by upholding and attending to the preaching of the whole counsel of God's word. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Listen, look at me in my eyes while I say this. If ever someone stands behind this pulpit and preaches to you a gospel that does not conform to the scriptures or to our statement of faith, your responsibility as a member of this church is to run them out of the place. Do you hear what I'm saying? If it's me, if it's one of the elders, if it's some other person, if there is someone that comes behind this pulpit and preaches to you a false gospel, your responsibility before the Lord Jesus Christ is to run them out of the place. Be nice, I mean, don't, don't like... You know, like get pitchforks or something, but get them out of here. It's that important. The gospel is that important. It's heaven and hell. It's life and death. And that means that you need to know the gospel. You need to love it. Uh, maybe you hear me say that and you think, you know, I, I don't know if I really have a solid enough understanding of the gospel to contend for it in the way that you're explaining and I'd love to talk with you, or, or some of the other elders would love to talk with you. Uh, let me also recommend, there's a, there's a little black book on that back table uh, titled, very simply, What is the Gospel? 
If you'd like to drill down more deeply and just shore up your understanding, your ability to communicate the gospel, that would be a very helpful resource to you. It's a, it's a short book. You can read it relatively quickly. But I would love to talk to you. The elders would love to talk to you. If you'd like to just really, really shore up your understanding, your ability to communicate the gospel and even spot false gospels. So contending is this exerting intense effort. It's expelling false gospels. And lastly, to contend for the gospel means to endure the criticism and suffering that will inevitably come as a result. And Paul ends this section saying, verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now these false teachers were actually criticizing and denouncing Paul as someone who is preaching an incomplete, soft gospel. He was being called a second-rate preacher, but Paul's motivation was not the approval of man, but God, and so he didn't preach to please man, but to serve Christ. Because of Christ, he was willing to endure criticism and suffering that came along with his preaching, and so must we. The, the gospel that we preach is an offensive gospel to the world. World, Paul says in, in, elsewhere in his letter to the Corinthians that when the gospel goes out to some, it will be the aroma of life, but to others it will be the stench of death and will necessarily court criticism. And so our call is to contend for the gospel, even in the face of criticism and insult. Let me close with this. What a privilege that we have. What a privilege we have. If the gospel is clear to you, brothers and sisters, if the gospel is clear to you, it's because God has opened your blind eyes and unstopped your deaf ears. If this morning you are trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's because God has graciously brought you to new life through the work of his spirit, and has given you a mind to know and understand what he has done for you in Christ. What a privilege to know the grace of God, to know clearly the love of God to you in Christ. What a privilege to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a, what a privilege to contend for this good news, which alone has the power to rescue men and women out of, of death, out of spiritual death, and raise them to new life in Christ. So, so if I can tweak Vince Lombardi's quote a little bit. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. Let's never move on from it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I thank you for this time in your word. And we pray that you would help us to cling to this gospel, to contend for it. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes to see truthfully uh, this gospel that we might know salvation in Jesus' name. And Lord, I want to pray also for Gary in the back there. I know he's having a hard time. And, and uh, we pray that you would um, uh, graciously allow this, this seizure to pass. Uh, thank you for the brothers and sisters there that are caring for him. Lord, uh, comfort him, be near to him. Um, uh, bring uh, peace and calm to his body. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.